Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. So all of those passages, as you could tell, are from the New Testament. And yes, we are still in the book of Exodus. It's a little bit of a different kind of <clears throat> excuse me, message today. So last week, um, I was in uh, Door County, Wisconsin, with a, group of, a small group of Acts 29 pastors from the area. And so we get together, get together every six months. And so uh, one of the guys from St. Louis hadn't been to Door County, and he'd heard it was a great place to go. He just didn't hear that it was a terrible place to go in the beginning of May. So it was all still very cold, but we were on the shore of Lake, our place is on the shore of Lake Michigan. And if you've stood on any of the Great Lakes and looked out, uh, or any ocean where you can't see anything but water, um, it's much different than looking at a small pond, or a river, um, or a large lake even. And so there's something about the scope and vastness of what you see that has a different effect upon us. You, you see the, the magnificence and the power and the, and the beauty of God. And the same thing with, with mountains. You're standing in the midst of mountains. All you can see is mountains in the horizon and across the landscape. And it, it, it gives us something different uh, from what we can experience um, than if we're just looking at a small hill or some earth somewhere else, or deserts and sand, I could continue on. The point is, when you see something large and can take in the whole, it gives you a different experience and understanding of what it is you're looking at than if you were just looking at a small part of it. And so what we're going to do today is look at a big, the big picture of the Pentateuch, okay? because the biblical texts work the same way. All right. So we usually look at uh, you know a few verses or maybe even a few chapters, but it's generally a small piece of text that we're looking at when we select our, our text for the sermon. Well, in the Bible, there are 1,200 chapters and about 31,000 verses. In the Pentateuch alone, there are 187 chapters and almost 6,000 verses. It's almost a fifth of the Bible. So we can, you know, we've been working through the Pentateuch since last fall. We're about halfway through, a little over halfway through the book of Exodus. Um, and obviously, the individual passages with the verses and the chapters carry meaning. And we've been digging deep into those meanings and learning and growing a lot. I've got a lot of great feedback uh, from the series so far. We've got people listening and watching uh, around the country, in fact, around the world, that folks in India check in every week that we're working with. Um, and so it's successful, it's effective to look at the text in the way that we've been having it, been doing it. Um, it's unusual, however, to take a step back and look at some big picture things. And we need to expand our view because um, we've been going into laws. We've, we've done two messages on the Ten Commandments. Last week we did a, a message on the Covenant Code, which is the first code of laws after the Ten Commandments. Without the expanded view that Moses had of the law, we can't get the smaller pieces. So we're going to take a step back. We've been spending time mostly in narrative and in some poetry, and these last three messages have been on the law. As the Pentateuch will continue to unfold, what we're going to see is most of the rest of the book of Exodus is laws. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
all of the book of Leviticus, except for a a few small portions of narrative, are laws. And most of Numbers are laws. Deuteronomy is mostly law. So we are about to get into a significant chunk of text that's mostly legal literature. And so we want to look at how was Moses constructing the Pentateuch, and did he construct it in a way that is telling us how to interpret all these laws? We could just dive in, and we could start trying to understand some laws, and we're going to spend some time, just like we did last week, in looking at a few laws as we go through the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, just to see what the wisdom of God was behind these laws. And so today's message is kind of what I call a top shelf message. It's a little bit of work to get there. You have to pay a little bit more. It's going to require a little bit different maybe uh, intellectual uh, approach, but I'm sure that it's going to be worth it if the, 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 the delivery I give is worthy of the content. The content is, is amazing, it's beautiful, it's the Word of God, so let's pray that, um, that the delivery matches up to it uh, to an understandable degree. So the first thing I want to talk about today is a literary device called juxtaposition. Has anybody ever heard of juxtaposition in terms of a literary device? Okay. So this is, this is a piece of the top shelf. Okay, so juxtaposition. It's a fancy word for an intentional positioning of things so that there's meaning and understanding derived from how they are positioned with each other. Okay, that's what juxtapositioning is. We've already seen a couple examples of this. So when we looked at... Um, the last section of Genesis, which is the record of the genealogies of the sons of Jacob. Okay, chapter 37 begins that last section. Uh, Chapter 37 is all about Joseph and his dreams and the conflict with his brothers and getting sold off. Chapter 38 is all about Judah. So what Moses is telling us in this broader story about Jacob's sons, there's two sons that he wants the reader to pay attention to. And so the rest of the story is really just this interplay between Joseph and Judah. Now, everybody assumes you get to the end of the story because, you know, Joseph's the hero, right? Well, that's because they haven't been paying attention to Moses' juxtapositioning. He also wants us to pay attention to Judah. And it's actually Judah that comes out as the hero. He's the ancestor to Jesus Christ. Okay, so you have to pay attention. He does it again at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So Exodus 1 is about Israel and being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and the, and the trouble that they were having. Exodus 2 is all about Moses. All right? We typically read it in regard to the story of Israel, but we also need to be seeing it as, an individu- as a story about the individual man, Moses. Because we'll see what happens to Israel is also going to what happens is also what happens to Moses as an individual. And so Moses is teaching some things about himself and his orientation towards God. And it comes to uh, be that, that there's about the same amount of text in the book of Genesis concerning the man Abraham 
as there is in the four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as there is about Moses. And so one of the things that Moses is wanting to do is to be a comparison to Abraham, the man of faith, and Moses, the man of law. Okay, so you don't see these things unless you kind of take, take a step back and say, okay, what's going on in the entire Pentateuch, one-fifth of the Bible? Okay, so because of its massive size, it's kind of hard to do that. But I, it's important that we do that. It's important that we do that. So there are three genres of literature. So that's another term, genre. It's a type of literature. So there's poetry, and we've looked at some poems. There is narrative literature, and that's what we've spent most of the bulk of our time with. And then there's legal literature. All right, so, the, so not only do those individual pieces have meaning, so when we read a poem, it's got a message to it. Okay, when we read some narrative with all of its, its, its characters, its themes, its plot, there's, there's some meaning there. And there's meaning in individual laws. Now, the poetry, according to Moses' use, the poetry sums up narrative portions that have come before it, and the poetry is really carrying the larger ideas and message of the Pentateuch. That's, what the poet, that's how Moses is using poetry, to sum up and carry the big ideas. Narrative is, again, so it's, it's the characters, it's the plot, it's the themes, it's the stuff that we're most familiar with. But if we don't pay attention to how it's organized with the poetry and with the legal codes, we don't get the full meaning. And then finally, the legal codes are a bunch of laws. It's a bunch of laws. So if we don't interpret all three of these pieces together and accurately, um, we won't interpret it well. And it, we will often, see, one of, the, one of the challenges that we have in the Old Testament is that we can read it and we can come away with what I think our culture refers to kind of a wooden literalism. Okay, we, we read it, this is what it says, that means it means what it says, and we're going to do what it says. We don't want to have a wooden literalism when we read the Bible. There is a beauty and there is an art to it that Moses is using to help us interpret all of these things. And when we look at it in that way, we will come away with a very beautiful and more accurate reflection of what Moses intended that doesn't get into this wooden liter literalism. So there are some common assumptions about law. So as we're going to all this legal literature, there are some common assumptions that we just generally make as human beings. And some of the assumptions are about the Old Testament. And because we're in kind of a church culture, or if we've had some church experience, these, these assumptions are just kind of present. First of all, um, these are God's laws, and so they must reflect God's ethics. And we still need to apply them somewhat, but there's obviously some accommodations. And when you ask somebody, hey, how do we interpret and apply these these laws. You, it's often time, you, you, you can't often get a very clear answer. All right? we, we know that, that Jesus has said some things don't apply, and some things don't apply simply because it doesn't make sense. Like, we still don't do sacrifices, but are we able to explain why we don't do sacrifices? Is it just, well, that was Israel, and Israel's not in the plan anymore, and so now we're the church, and so we don't follow those laws. But we do have to follow the laws which says do not steal. Why do we follow those laws and not other laws? 
So we're a little bit confused about how all these laws work. Uh, we know Jesus has said, you know, it's okay to eat anything now, so we can have bacon, which is great. But can we explain why it's okay for us to have bacon? Because there are still people that say, no, we need to live under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. So there's a lack of clarity about what these laws in the Old Testament are, but still some sense that they need to be understood and applied to some degree. We oftentimes approach the Old Testament, well, the Old Testament is the whole book of laws, and the New Testament is all love and grace. And we don't need to read the Old Testament anymore because it's outdated and not applicable. We would rather live in a, in a time and with a book that's characterized by love and grace. God gave us laws, so we must follow them. And to follow these laws is what it means to be a righteous person. So we define righteousness oftentimes by, by what these laws say. And I think a lot of us would have this impression that God gave these laws to humanity. I think this is a strong impression in people's minds. God gave these laws to humanity. Humanity didn't follow them, so Jesus had to die Okay, because we weren't holy, Jesus was holy, Jesus died in our place. But if we could have been holy and followed these laws, that's what God would have been most happy with. So there's assumptions, there's some assumptions there. Well, Moses uses this juxtapositioning principle to tell us something about the law and the laws. Now, scholars have found throughout the Pentateuch 613 laws, 613. Now, but there's some problems. Sometimes the laws are repeated. So do you count those? Um, the laws aren't given all at once, and so there's not this fixed body of legal code. Like if you, know, if, you, if you get on the website or would ask for, I would imagine it's multiple, multiple volumes, but you can look up the entire legal code for the state of Iowa on the website. Okay, that's not how the law came down to Israel. It's not in this, just this big book. By itself, a set of legal codes. All right, it's this, it's this set of codes that are interspersed throughout the story of the nation of Israel. So it's not given all at once. Some of the laws are not repeated in the second generation. So the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, the, the actual word means uh, Deutero is two, and nomos, nonomy, is law. So it's the second giving of the law. All right, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Okay, it's the second giving of the law because the first generation was not allowed into the land because of their disobedience, which we'll cover that in Numbers. And so God, Moses had to give the law again to their kids. Well, you read Deuteronomy, and some of the laws that you find in the first set of laws given to the first generation aren't repeated in Deuteronomy. So do they, follow, do they not follow the ones that were given the first time? Or the, are the laws in Deuteronomy now the only official set of laws? So there's all, these, there's all these questions. There's commands in there. When you make an altar, make it out of earth. Do not use stone. But then there's laws that says, when you make an altar, make it out of stone. So it seems like you even have laws that are contradictions. So what is Moses doing here? Well, his positioning of these laws gives us some insight. So let's look at how these laws unfold throughout the Pentateuch. 
All right, so we've already seen a few times. So remember when Israel came out of Egypt, they started grumbling. The first one was at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies are coming, and they said, why didn't you just leave us back in Egypt where we were safe and we had enough food? Why have you brought us out here to die? Okay, that was their first grumbling against God. The second one was when they didn't have enough water. They were getting thirsty, their water reserves were running low, and so why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? There was plenty of water and food back in Egypt. All right, so it's at that point, after that second grumbling, the text says God began to deal with them according to statute and law. And it's the first time that their enjoyment of God's promises was dependent upon their obedience. It's the first time God became conditional. If you obey me, you'll enjoy the promises that I've made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now you. But if not, I will bring upon you the punishments that I gave Egypt. That's the first time the text does that. So then you go from there to Mount Sinai. There's three more grumblings before they get the Ten Commandments. So you get the Ten Commandments and then the, and then the Covenant Code. Now you remember from a few sermons ago, it was God's intent that they would meet him face to face and receive the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code. But when God came down to Mount Sinai and the trumpets blew, rather than coming forward to meet God, do you remember what happened? It says, they drew back in fear and they told Moses, Moses, you speak to God, we're too afraid. And then you will talk to us. We do not want to stand in the presence of God and meet him face to face. But that's, that's what was, that was what God wanted to do. And so you have the, the, the um, second grumbling, the first instance of a conditional law. These three grumblings, Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code. This expression of desire to not meet God face to face. So what does Moses do after they tell him that? He goes back up to the mountain. And he gets another set of laws. And it's the laws that have to do with this new group of people called priests. And so God said, I want to make you a nation of priests before he gave them the Ten Commandments. And now they're not a nation of priests, they're a nation with priests. It's a very different thing. And so Moses is up there, he's getting the laws about how Aaron and his sons are going to be these priests, what they've got to wear, all these various ceremonies, and the instructions on building the tabernacle. Why are there instructions on building the tabernacle? Because they didn't want to meet God face to face as a nation. So now they've got to have a place where God is going to dwell. So there's the courtyard, there's the tent of meeting, and then there's the Holy of Holies. God is going to be present in the Holy of Holies, not on top of Mount Sinai where they can meet him as a community. He's going to be present in the Holy of Holies, and one day a year, one man, the high priest, goes in and meets God face to face. That's a change. That's a change. So while Moses, so another set of laws because of humans' disbelief and fear of God and disobedience. 
And so while Moses is up there, and this is what we're going to see next week, while Moses, he's up there for like a month, and they're like, what's happened to Moses? And they grow restless. And Aaron fashions the two golden calves out of the gold that the community collects, and they start worshiping these golden calves. Aaron actually says, Hear, O Israel, is the God who saved you from Egypt, these two golden calves. God had just told them, you shall not make any images of me in the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is up on the temple, excuse me, on Mount Sinai, getting more commandments on how they are to dwell with him, with God, they are committing this idolatry and they engage in sexual immorality at the time. All right? So Moses comes back down and he is furious. He, he breaks the stone tablets containing the law and crushes the golden calves and melts them down. And then he says, who is going to come to my side, O nation? And the Levites come to his side and they go throughout the community and they kill somewhere around 3,500 of the people that were engaged in the idolatry and the sexual immorality. That's why you have this, now this family called the Levites. So the Levites were one of the 12 tribes, right? They were going to go into the land. They have a portion of land just like everybody else. But now they are a special tribe. Why? Because the Levites came to Moses' side after the idolatry and the sexual immorality around the golden calf. So the pattern, this pattern continues. So the pattern is God desires humanity, the nation of Israel specifically, to love him and to believe in him because of his generosity and kindness and his life-giving character. That's what God wants from us. Their disobedience, their lack of faith, their consciences, all prevented them to enjoy that presence of God, to love him, to believe in him. So what you see is, is this unbelief, this despising of God, what he calls it, when they, when they do not love him. So there's this despising of God, there's unbelief, there's disobedience. There is law given. There's more disbelief, there's more despising, there's more disobedience, there's more law given. So this pattern continues until the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Disobedience, law, disobedience, law, disobedience, law. This is why, this is why Paul says laws were added because of transgressions. The conclusions we can make from what Moses, how, how Moses has positioned this are just a few. One, the laws are responses to human weaknesses. And they're not a part of God's original plan. God did not have this set of laws established. and says, okay, here is what it means to be a holy and righteous human being. And this is what I want all human beings to to, to live according to. And anyone that doesn't is an unrighteous person and they cannot be in my presence. I think that's how we think, that God has kind of this standard established in this code of laws. It's, it's not the case. 
The laws were not God's original plan. The laws are responses to our unbelief, our lack of love, and our disobedience towards God. So Paul interprets this pattern, Galatians 3.19, what Brenna read. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions and <clears throat> excuse me, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the law came in, Romans 5, 20 through 21. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So you remember, the promise from Genesis chapter 3 is that woman would have an offspring that would destroy the serpent and bring life back to everything. That's still the hope. That's still the hope. That's the original plan. That's the original hope for life. Not a set of laws. The laws were added because of humanity's disobedience. And as laws were added... The transgressions, okay, transgressions are acts of specific sin against specific laws. So these laws, they just kept piling up. And because there's more laws, there's more transgressions. So for us, you know, if we're put into our context, uh, the more laws there are to break, the more, the more opportunities police officers have to arrest us, all right? I have no idea how many laws, traffic laws there are, but there's a lot of them. There's laws we don't even know about. So the more laws, the more violations. And, Paul, and then Paul says that our indebtedness, our legal indebtedness, our legal obligations to the law grew. Galatians 3, 23 to 26, Paul says this, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law served as a guardian or as a tutor. How did it do that? Well, one thing is that laws do help us restrain ourselves from our worst tendencies. Okay, if we know something is a law that's going to work in our consciences, and as sinful as we are, it, it does work to prevent us from fully engaging in all of the, the sins and transgressions that we would like. So that's one purpose. The other purpose is that these laws... In identifying how we failed against God, also pointed to where our weaknesses were at and pointed to the fact that we need something different than a law. And we need something different than what we have as human beings to stop despising, disbelieving, and disobeying God. So what is needed? If law is not the solution... Okay, perfect fulfillment of the law is not the solution. It's never been a possibility. It's never been the plan, and it's not the ideal. What is needed is a new heart. That's what we need. 
Now, at the, so at the conclusion of Deuteronomy, at the conclusion of Moses' book, a fifth of the Bible, he brings this to our attention. At the end of his big batch of sermons to this second generation, they're standing there for days just listening to sermons from Moses. At the end, he says this, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And later he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now they use this metaphor of circumcision because circumcision was a part of everyday life there. It meant that you were in the covenant if you were a male. Okay, so this idea of cutting off the foreskin all right, was a very visual image. And so Moses is saying, listen, what needs to happen, your heart needs to be cut out. It needs to be cut out. And you need to be given a new one. That's what Moses says. Because he says, listen, you're going to fail against all these laws. You're, all of these judgments are going to come upon you that I've written out here. You're going to be exiled to all these foreign nations. You're going to be taken captive. You're going to cease to exist as a nation. It's all going to happen. Moses says that. But God will pull you back someday. And God will give you, he's going to cut out your old heart of stone, and he's going to give you a new heart of flesh. So the problem is our hearts. And our hearts, obviously, he's not talking about our physical heart. He's talking about the heart from the standpoint of the biblical literature is, is what we love and hold most dear. It's what's most important to us. That's what our hearts are. It drives our desires, it drives our wills, it drives our actions. We will do what we love, all right? Most of us don't do what we think through thoroughly. Most of us do what we love. And it oftentimes gets us in trouble. And so then what we do then is we use our minds. Why did I get in trouble? That's when we, that's when we usually engage our minds, right? And over time after our hearts have pulled us into all kinds of problems and we've engaged our mind to learn how, I've I, I got to avoid doing that. Eventually we get to the point where we recognize I need something to change what I love. What I love is hurting me. What I love is hurting me. That's why we see in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is directing us to God and to love him. The last commandment, number 10, do not covet. Coveting is loving anything else that you believe is going to bring prosperity and happiness to your life. That's what coveting is, other than God. He says, do not love your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's donkey, all these, those list of things not to love. He wants us to love God because God is the ultimate source of prosperity and happiness, the things that God has been providing and promising to humanity from the beginning, if we hold on to him. So how do we get this new heart? Moses says God's going to do it. We can't do it. Our hearts need cut out. Well, Paul says Jesus does it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, in him, having faith in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Right, he's drawing upon Moses' 
terminology. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The body of flesh is our instinct, our heart, to covet. To love things other than God, believing that they are the source of prosperity and happiness. Jesus cuts this out. If we believe in Jesus Christ, that he is indeed Savior and Lord, and our means to dwell in God's presence once again, which means to experience true prosperity and happiness. If we believe that Jesus is the one that is able to do this, he cuts out this heart of flesh, and he gives us a new heart. He gives us his heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And that spirit then, it says, it regenerates and renews us. It makes us a new creation. And he does this through the forgiveness of our sins and transgressions against the laws of God, which revealed how we despised and disbelieved God. Verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, violations against the law, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your old hearts. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the laws established what it meant to transgress against God. And our transgressions against God literally put us in jail, imprisoned us. And so we were indebted to those laws and indebted to that legal system. And so what Christ does is he forgives us. I'll take the debt. I'll take your uncircumcised hearts. I will set it aside, and I will give you mine. I will give you my heart, my heart to love God. And Moses said, you will love God. And other places says, you will no longer need anyone to teach you. Why? Because you have the heart of Jesus Christ. See, the laws aren't the ideal that we attain to. The laws point us to where we fail to love God, and the laws point us to the fact that we need Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the law. So as these laws continue to unfold throughout the Pentateuch, we're going to read them, and, and because you know, some of them are going to be so archaic and strange, and we're going to look at some of those, um, that it, it just doesn't seem to make sense to us at all. But as we read them, we're going to see things that, ooh, I have, I have failed against this. I, this is what I do. And we can, we can wrestle and say, oh, this is the Old Testament, that's for Israel, all we want. But we can see within them, we can see, hey, there are some ethical principles here that are true for, for all time, and they are reflected in this law. And I'm a violator of this law. Don't get stuck there. Rejoicing the fact that it's pointed something out in you and is directing you to the promise of the hope of Jesus Christ who cuts out our hearts and gives us a new heart. And even if we have believed in Jesus Christ, that renewal of our hearts is always taking place. The laws are always identifying places where we're coveting. We've been completely forgiven. And now Christ continues to cleanse us. He continues to cut away 
pieces of our flesh that continue to, to tell us lies about what prosperity and happiness is aside from God. And it points us to where Jesus Christ does provide those things. Let's pray. God, thank you for the law. Thank you for how you have beautifully constructed the text through the Holy Spirit and your servant Moses. God, thank you for the wisdom that's contained in it. Thank you, Lord God, that it points us to where we are in need of Jesus Christ and his cleansing. God, may we fully take on the promises here that are in your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.